Welcome to MedSider, where you can learn from experienced medical device and med tech experts through uncut and unedited interviews. Now, here's your host, Scott Nelson. Hey there, ladies and gents. Welcome to another edition of MedSider Radio. If you're new to the program, MedSider Radio is where we learn from MedTech and other healthcare thought leaders through uncut and unedited interviews. Just a few quick messages before we get started. First, if you've enjoyed these interviews over the last several years, please head on over to iTunes and rate our show. It's pretty simple to do. Once you're in iTunes, just click on the Write a Review button. You can then check the number of stars, preferably it's all five, and write a few sentences if you feel like it. Trust me when I say the reviews really help, so if you feel up to it, please do us a favor and head on over to iTunes when you get a chance. Second, I send out a free email newsletter about two times per month highlighting my favorite med tech and or healthcare related stories, the ones that I personally get a lot of value from. I don't send the newsletter out very often, but when I do, I really try to make sure it's valuable. So if you're interested, head on over to medsider.com and enter your email address. As a bonus, I'll send you a free digital ebook that I think you'll find pretty interesting. And lastly, for those of you that subscribe to that email newsletter I just mentioned, you're probably already aware of this, but I recently joined the medtech practice of WCG, a fully integrated marketing agency. So if you're looking for some marketing help, there's a few reasons you might want to consider our firm. First, we're entirely focused on med tech. That's all we do. A second, our wheelhouse is analytics, which drives all of our marketing recommendations. And third, we're fully integrated, which means you don't have to source capabilities uh, from, a, from another shop. So if you have a project in mind that you'd like to discuss, hit me up at scott at medsider.com. Again, that's scott at medsider.com, S-C-O-T-T at M-E-D-S-I-D-E-R.com. Okay, on to, today, on to uh, today's episode. Engaging with patients in a genuine and transparent way is tough, really tough. It's challenging for all healthcare stakeholders, payers, providers, industry, etc. Now, from a med tech perspective, we oftentimes get stuck in a certain mindset, whether it's a continuous glucose monitor for diabetic patients or a new hip implant for orthopedic patients. We gravitate towards communicating the features and benefits of our particular product. For example, this may sound kind of familiar. Joe Patient, you, you should consider our knee implant because it has a greater arc than competitor X. But is this really the right approach? If our end goal is for a patient to take action, is this the best way to engage with them? To answer that question, I invited Neil Sofian to the program. He's currently the VP of Engagement and Innovation at Vivacity, a subsidiary of Primera Blue Cross. Neil is recognized internationally for his work in population health management and behavioral change. Here are some of the topics we're going to cover in this interview. What does patient personalization really mean and why messaging around life and context is so important? Why do so many life science companies fail to effectively personalize their messages to patients? What technologies can actually support effective patient engagement? Examples of companies that have been successful at patient personalization? How to overcome some of the legal challenges associated with patient engagement? And the top two things that medtech or biotech companies should do right now to improve their patient engagement initiatives. Of course, there's a lot more that we cover in this interview, but without further ado, let's jump right in. Neil, welcome to the, uh, the program. Well, glad to be here. 
Yeah, thanks for taking time uh, for the MedSider audience. So we're gonna we're gonna talk uh, all things patient engagement here uh, here today, uh, especially as it relates to uh, how medical device companies, pharmaceutical companies, biotech companies, etc., uh, should really how, how they should really think about engaging with patients in a uh, in a meaningful and transparent way. Um, so let's let's start with, with with that in mind. And the, the first maybe question I'd like to like to or topic I'd like to discuss is is the fact that it patient engagement is so challenging, right? Um, uh, certainly pharmaceutical companies, that's the, where we, we see their ads uh, most most often, but even medical device companies now are, are most are starting to think about or, or trying to incorporate patient engagement in a, uh, in, a, in, a in a larger way. Um, but it's, it's challenging for everyone, right? It's not just not just on the industry side, it's, it's payers, it's, it's providers, etc. Um, so when we think about that, uh, let's start with personalization. And, and personalization to the to the to the the end patient. So, what does that really mean, in your opinion, Neil? Well, it means a couple of things. One is um, we are actually people; we're not patients. Uh, we spend a lot of time, even though I know uh, in in your field, the a great deal of the work is focusing on the patient. I think too much of what's happened in healthcare in general is that when we've looked at people, we've tended to look at their risk, their disease, their condition, their current costs or circumstance, I'm inpatient or I'm on this drug. And we forget that for the most part, we spend most of our lives not being patients, but being people. And that we're motivated by all sorts of things and that health, other than when you don't have your health, is not particularly motivational. Most people don't get up in the morning and say, what can I do to be healthy today? They do all sorts of things around what can I do to make my life better? How can I do well at work? What can I do for my family? You know, what can I do for, I'm going to get together with a friend, uh, those sorts of things. Uh, we have purpose, but rarely is health at the top of that list. And yet most of what we're doing is we spend our time personalizing by telling people we're being personal by talking about your risk, as opposed to Instead of giving you general information, we at least acknowledge you have diabetes or you're in for a specific surgical procedure, and we call that personalization. And I would say that that is better than um, a stick in the eye, but it's not exactly what I would consider personal because it's really just conditional as in focused on the condition. Got it. I loved your comparison of, of better than a stick in the eye. Uh, I'm not sure if that's the bar we want to measure ourselves upon, <laughs> but I, no, I couldn't agree I with you. Low bar, but then again, I think in our field, we our bar is is sadly extremely low. Uh, we do not use technologies that almost every other industry, every other industry vertical in in, in the economy uses to personalize, uh, and we use almost none of that. We're still, to the most part, in the healthcare industry using 1995 technology in a 2016 2017 world. I, I couldn't agree with you more on that comment. It, it, I still find it amazing. I, I like to. You know, somewhat pride myself on on and trying to be on on the on the leading edge of of uh, of how how you know, especially SaaS companies that that really do it well and how they market and and, and message to uh, uh, to their to consumers, right? Their, their consumer audience, and it's amazing how far healthcare is is behind. It's uh, <laughs> it's uh, you know quite laughable, um, but. Uh, a comment you made about about uh, personalization with respect to patients, and, and I guess the end message would be, we need to put ourselves in the shoes of the average patient and treat them as a human versus a patient. Um, but on that note, why do you think so many 
you know, not just companies, but other other uh, organizations as well, you know, payers, providers, et cetera. But more specifically, why do you think most companies fail to do that? Um, I think there's a paradigm problem and a laziness problem and a legal problem. Um, we are more focused on trying to change people's behavior by simply telling them what they should do with the, kind of the presumption that if I provide you enough information, you'll do the right thing. And that's simply not true. Uh, it's information can be an important um, motivator. It can be an important precursor to behavior change, but rarely is information sufficient. And yet, if you think about it from our world with with legal issues, with HIPAA issues, with things like that, we're more focused from a you know from a payer perspective or an employer perspective. With let's just make sure whatever we tell you is accurate. And if it's accurate, you can't sue me. And if you can't sue me, then at least I've checked off that bar. Or if I'm a health plan, I can say, gee, I sent out materials and that meets a requirement around HEDIS or star ratings. So I can say I, I, I accomplished that goal. What my goal in those cases are, are organizational or institutional goals. They're really not about changing people's behavior. Uh, more than that, it's they're, they're not focused on from what I would view as a public health perspective, which is my goal is not simply to change a person, my goal is to change the prevalence so that if, if I have a population of a, of a million people who have diabetes, you know, it's not just enough that I want to help one person. Uh, I need to say, how do I change the prevalence of that million people? How do I get it down to where um, all million of these people are being treated? Now, the paradox of that is, of course, I have to do it one person at a time, which means I need to understand them. So I need almost a public health prevalence view and then a highly personal strategy at a tactical view to make it happen. Got it. And and, and certainly it's um, somewhat easy to grasp, I think, you know, from an intellectual standpoint, but I think much, much easier or much, much more difficult or challenging to execute on that uh, kind of combining of those two different paradigms, that sort of that macro strategy or population health mindset versus, you know, drilling all the way down to the individual person and messaging accordingly. So let, let's let's talk a little bit more about that. Um, so so in essence, I guess just to kind of you know put a put a pick into that that topic, the goal you know again viewing things from from the lenses of, of of industry or a company, we shouldn't really need to be we shouldn't be communicating you know X Y Z health problem or to use your example uh, you know the, the problem of type two or type one diabetes. We really need to be talking about you know context and life of that that particular patient correct yep got it absolutely i'll give you an example it's not about a disease but it's about weight so when is one of the highest times of the year people lose weight well one is new year's we do we always say that another is when people are going to have a wedding uh you know so those are very specific times but what's interesting is that one of the other most fascinating times is people lose weight before their 10th and 20th high school reunions. Hmm. Now, why? You know, and, and let me assure you, it's got nothing to do with health. Um, you know, th th there's no, this is a group of people that you haven't seen in 10 or 20 years in many cases. So what's really going on is you wanna, you're wanting to let people see you who you haven't seen in a long time, maybe show them what they missed, or show them how you've changed, or maybe there's somebody there that you're wondering if, hey, I wonder if they're available. In other words, this is all about relationships and sex. It's got nothing to do with health. And yet it's a huge motivator to get people to take action. 
you know, so that's an example of context where um, where something that seems totally unrelated can make a massive difference in getting people to do something because you're keying into something that's meaningful to that person at that moment in their life. Got it. Uh, that, that makes a ton of sense uh, to, you know, that, that example that you shared. Do you have one uh, that's that's maybe a little bit more specific to how um, how an organization would would uh, would be could do better in terms of communicating uh, this to to the end to the inpatient? Sure. So let's let's start by what information do we need on you to make this happen? You know, because, uh, you know, so I'll kind of start at the basement, the foundation. The first thing I need to know is how to contact you. Amazingly, of, of all the major industry verticals, we know less ways to get a hold of you than anybody else. I mean, it's been a bugaboo in the whole industry, whether you're at the provider level, whether you're at the payer level, not as much at the employer level, but that we don't even know how to, we don't even have your phone number. We, you know, your, your text, we can't text you. We don't even know your email. So it's hard to be consumer centric if you don't actually have some basic information. I can't call you if I don't know where to find you. So that's first. The second is we need to start thinking about a different kind of data. Uh, Right now, the data we tend to collect on people is claims. Uh, We might have biometrics. We might have risk data if it's an employer population. We will have cost data. We'll have claims data. We will have uh, risk data, you know, because we can risk rate you based upon what your, 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 pharmacy, your pharmacy utilization, your diagnostic codes, and your costs. I'd like to suggest that you are more than your costs and your, di- and your diagnoses, but that you actually have values, uh, that you have purpose, that you have uh, other things going on in your life that are important. For example, are you a caregiver? How are your relationships? How are your finances? those sorts of things. And if I understand that, which means I have to have a tool that begins to acquire that data. Um, and I can do that in two ways. First, a lot of this data is purchasable. Um, you want to buy a psychodemographic profile on a population of people, you can do it. Well, there are any number of companies out in the marketplace, whether it's uh, the futures company or others, that will sell you that data on hundreds of millions of people. And for pennies, Per, per person if you're buying a large population of people. So I can actually find demographic profiles on people. I can find purchasing profiles on people. Are these people folks who buy sporting goods or they have pets or they sh- they're value shoppers at the grocery store or they're, they tend to be shopping high end? And based upon all that, I can either use that to assume a psychodemographic profile or I might even be able to predict what their hobbies are. Which, what are the things that motivate them to do things? Um, so I can get that kind of data. And then lastly, besides what I can purchase, I can do an old-fashioned thing, if I, assuming I can connect with people, is I can ask them what they care about. Um, surprisingly, we don't do that. Um, we, we might ask them in a health assessment um, you know, about their health behaviors. You know, do you smoke? Do you drink? Do you wear a seatbelt? Did your mother have breast cancer? Things like that, and then give you a score as though a score is somehow useful. Um, but we don't ask them things like, how'd you sleep? How's your energy level today? How do you feel about what you ate? Did you move? Uh, and how do you f- what's your stress level today? And then accompany that with some simpler questions that says, what do you value in life? Is career more important than relationships or family or health or finances? 
Let's force rank those. Let's get that information about you and then find out how you're spending your time in relation to that. Let's ask you simple questions. How do you feel about your relationships? Uh, how do you feel about your finances? Are you a caregiver? And if so, who are you a caregiver for and how are you feeling about that? And maybe even things like introversion, extroversion scales. And if I put that together, I now have uh, that between the per If I can take the data I tend to accumulate from being a provider or a payer, if I can take the, the context of con converse, uh, information I gather from third parties, and then, I ask, and then the questions I ask, I can build a composite profile on a, on a person that's surprisingly robust and meaningful. Um, and if based on that, I can make some assumptions of who you are so that when I begin to reach out and build content for you, I can build it based on who I think you are and then actually tailor that content very precisely. And I don't mean like you'll get the diabetes brochure versus the asthma brochure, but I mean tailor down to words within sentences that speak to your values, to your circumstances, and to what sort of things that you might want to do to address your issues. And if I do that by through high personalization of both the words, the images, and the offers, I can really significantly change the level of behavior change that I may get out of that one individual diabetic who currently is impatient for some sort of maybe retinopathy uh, or some other issue or neuropathy. Um, and then how we then can continue to have a conversation with that person ongoingly. Got it. That makes sense. So, so just to kind of to kind of summarize, because that was a you know a lot of really good information. Um, but to summarize, and again, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna put back on my 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 med tech hat. You know, viewing things kind of from from the ind industry perspective. Presuming I've got a valuable solution that I want to promote to a certain subset of of, of patients. First and foremost, I've got to figure out how to best communicate them, communicate to them, I should say. And granted, most medical device companies or biotech companies aren't probably going to have, you know, cell phone numbers and uh, and email addresses. But the the concept still applies: is that what is the best channel to communicate our message to this, you know, this particular subset or cohort of patients? Uh, and the second item was was really in regards to creating a persona about the inpatient, right? An you know, a, a patient avatar, so to speak. And and what you're saying, Neil, if I understand you correctly, is that that avatar's got to be more robust than than claims data and risk data, risk ma risk matrix data, et cetera. It's got to be a lot more. It's got to involve a lot more than 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 just health issues. Uh, I guess to put it plainly, you know, you're talking about you know uh, involving psychodemic or psycho uh, psychoanalysis yes, or demographic right analysis, um, and and utilizing other I guess other data sets to build out a really robust uh, you know patient patient profile that's not just about health. Did I kind of summarize that Yeah, accurately? absolutely. And, and, and that, what that allows for is um, instead of doing segmentation, which is what we do today, that's considered the kind of the gold standards of segment your population and you'll make a difference. Well, segmentation is better than general, just un, unsegmented population uh, conversations. But Instead of thinking of segments like you're a diabetic or you're a depressed diabetic, which is a more refined segment, and I build messages around that specific, each of those things, whether it's your psychodemographic profile, your medical condition, your need for uh, a medical device, any of these become attributes of a profile of who you are, and then those attributes come gathered together, and then on the fly you can build messages that acknowledge those different attributes that make a difference for you. So... 
I'm trying to think of an example we might pull together. Uh, so you need a knee replacement or a hip replacement, but I also realize that you're um, caring for both children and you have an elderly parent staying in your home and your finances are strapped. That changes the conversation about what you think you can afford or not afford to do uh, in terms of surgical procedure. To, and it's not the money necessarily. You may be insurance covered, but you've also got a 92-year-old mother upstairs in your house. And if I don't help you manage her, you're going to not do that surgery, however much pain you're in, because you can't afford the time to rehab yourself. And so I need to understand the context of your life if I expect you to, one, have that procedure done, and two, help you be successful in your outcome because I have to understand your whole life circumstance because that's important. You're Obviously, you're letting a parent live with you. That's an, that's an incredibly important thing. And then right. I would actually, if, if you're deciding on that, that what should I have the procedure done, one, the message should be focused on how can I better take care of my mom? because you're going to be more mobile after this surgery, and two, we're going to help you be able to get through the transition. That becomes a very different conversation than saying, clinically, your hip joint is, is had it, and you need a, you're going to need a hip replacement. God, that makes a ton of sense because if you if I mean I think that's that example that you just shared is is really easy for everyone to understand regardless if they've ever had you know you know uh, knee pain issues or hip pain issues and they're considering a uh, you know a, a joint replacement but to your to your point the overarching issue in that person's life is going to be taking care of their 92 year old you know mother or father right it's not going to be. They all, for all they know, they just their, their hip hurts, right, or the knee hurts, and you know their doctor and their friends and family have said that it probably needs to be replaced. But that person's thinking, well, how how and how how is this even going to be possible to have my knee replaced or my hip replaced, and then still take care of my you know my mother or father and and whatnot? So uh, that makes a lot of sense. Where you know from a, a device company perspective, if you're a, a, an orthopedic company, um, and and that that persona makes up a significant percentage of the patients that you want to message to that you should begin to incorporate maybe, uh, you know, content that aligns with that a little bit better. Is that both content and who knows, you might even rethink your product saying that, uh, and you know, whether that's at the device level or the care level, um, that part of your, uh, your care, um, uh, you know, say if you're thinking of a bundled care product, that maybe that comes with, um, three di forms of additional help. And you might say, I don't need help for me. I need help for because uh, I'm a caregiver and I need to get three days or a week's worth of support for a parent. And maybe that gets bundled into the product, um, you know, which is, I, I realize, a bit off the reservation from how we think about these things today. But that's just kind of an out-of-the-box example of uh, of that might really make a difference to somebody who's, you know, all of a sudden, who's the generation who's getting all these replacements is actually my my generation, the boomers, who are sandwiched. We have both kids and we have parents in many cases still alive. And our considerations around care go beyond the care itself. It goes around the, the kind of the swirl of life that's going on around us. And don't just support me with the device. Support me with some multiple choices on how I can manage around that device and that incident so I can manage my life better. Yeah, that makes that makes a ton of sense. Now, now Neil, when you think about um, you know collecting a lot of these the you know the, these these different data points in order to help build out that maybe that more robust uh, you know uh, patient persona, so to speak, 
Uh, are there are there technologies that that you utilize or that you are aware of that that help in that uh, in that endeavor? Um, sure. Now, I think the the bigger it, you know, there are a number of well for purchasing data. Um, you know, there's all kinds of sources for purchasing the data. Uh, payers also clearly have the claims and pharmacy data, or the ESIs or the the other PBMs have that sort of data. Um, so you can you can get that in terms of building out those kind of questions. Um, that's actually some work we're doing is looking at how do we build out that kind of different form of health assessment and integrating it into a then a learning system for messaging and and on the back end. So that's something we're actually doing at Primera. Um, but there have been some other folks who are doing similar sorts of work. Um, there's a little company called Joule. Uh, J-O-O-L, uh, up in, out, it's kind of an outgrowth at the University of Michigan uh, that's looking at how can we gather data around life purpose and energy um, uh, developed by a, a gentleman named Dr. Vic Strecker, uh, which is, is pretty cool technology. Um, he was the founder of Health Media in the past, and he's a full professor at the University of Michigan School of Medicine. So I think that's a, an interesting capability. There's a company called Tuzag, T-U-Z-A-G, like to zig and to zag, um, that's really looking at building out the tailoring capabilities um, to take all that data and then create highly tailored messages, offers, and images to people on the fly. They're even getting down to can they, can they push tailored video so that on the fly you, it can compile different little snippets of video together into a complete video for a person that that is relevant to their circumstance, which could be very interesting if we're having to build, um, if we know enough, five or six key items about you, and let's say you need a hip replacement, um, wouldn't it be great if you could get a three-minute video that was totally customized to your needs and your circumstances that would speak to your issues? Uh, and we might even speak to them in a style and language pertinent to your circumstance. That, that kind of technology is work that people like Tuzag are doing. And then I think companies like uh, Eliza, uh, which is a company out of Boston, is looking at, at, at the kind of uh, research it takes to look at those underlying issues around what are enablers and inhibitors of health around caregiving and relationships and, and depression and finances um, that, that do and don't drive health and that there are, they've built assessments that can help with that sort of thing. So there's a lot going on in the space. Um, if they're, but for the most part, they're pretty new companies, um, because it's, it's, the major shift is a paradigm shift, moving away from thinking medically and thinking more life oriented and finding, are there, what are the kind of, what's the why behind all the what's in people's lives? Sure. That makes it, that makes a, uh, a lot of sense. And I, I can appreciate. Well, I, I, I should say, the technologies that you just mentioned are very cool. But, but to your point, uh, you know, the, this is a complete paradigm shift. So I, I would think that as more, as more organizations, whether you're a payer, provider, you know, industry, etc., you know, kind of shift that paradigm. There's probably going to be even more more activity around best ways to, to sort of uh, not only collect data, but but you know, message message uh, accordingly to. Uh, to the to the right patient at the right time. So on that note, in your experience, you know, I mean, you're 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 sort of, I mean, I would consider uh, you are kind of on the, on the leading edge of this paradigm shift. Are there any? We've talked a lot about examples, and are, are there any um, you know real use cases that you can share that would give us uh, a better idea for who's doing who's doing this right 
or maybe on the flip side, if it's easier, maybe who's who's doing this wrong, or examples that you that you've seen where you know organizations aren't doing doing this the right way. I think the who's doing it wrong is most everybody, so that's a long list. And uh, <laughs> I, I was once taught that the way you tell uh, that, and this may be an apocryphal story, so I don't, I, I won't, can't swear it's the truth, but I, I kind of like the story, so I, I'll assume it's true. Is that <laughs> when Treasury agents are taught how to tell what is counterfeit money from what is uh, forgeries, they don't spend most of their time looking at forgeries. Uh, they actually look at, mostly what they do is look at real money. And what they try and do is really, really, really become familiar with what real money should look like. And if you really know what true north looks like, it's easy to tell when it's not. Um, and, I, I, and I like that notion of saying, let's focus on where we want to go and what looks right, because we have tons of examples of what's wrong. Because um, the whole industry has just been very slow at this. Um, sure. So um, if you look at an example outside the industry, pretty good vendor for this is called Amazon. I mean, the the ability to personalize, uh, and I, and they don't even tailor down at the at the word level, but they certainly tailor at the offer level in terms of offering you highly resonant and, and relevant choice. Um, I think that the work that we're doing with a, with a an assessment called Track uh, is an example of how we can do that and then use that data to push messages to you um, that can be then tied to whatever your need is or it could become a dashboard of information that a care coordinator could use because that way they understand. You know, just having all that kind of information we're talking about, when a care coordinator is talking about your rehab and your choices around care, if they understand those are issues for you, they can even, that just becomes data for them to use when talking to you. Uh, so it becomes a back office capability. Um, I think, like I mentioned, I think Juul is doing some very interesting things around that. Some of the bigger companies who are trying to do that sort of thing are, uh, I've seen companies like JIF, J-I-F-F, and WellTalk uh, are trying to do that sort of work. A company called Every Move is trying to do a little bit of that work. Um, so I, I think there are now beginning to be examples of all that. And then I think the other thing which they're all doing besides the data I'm talking about collecting, and then, then they're also building data relationships with the places where they send you. So that way they can see if you actually went or not, and because those become new data points um, and to see, you know, if I sent you out to get some sort of a rehab after uh, a joint replacement and I have a link and I send you someplace, I need to see if you went. And then if you went, did you take use of maybe that there's video support that can be done there? Did you go sign up for it? Did you use it? Because based on whether you used it or not, that's a data point that I can use to continue to refine my messaging to you. Um, sure. Things like well Talk are doing those sorts of things now. Um, I, I think there's a lot of those are the kind of things we're exploring right now uh, with, with track. Um, so there's a lot, of, a lot of that is emerging. I wouldn't say any of that is totally mainstream yet. Uh, but uh, I think it's going to be adopted quicker than we might think, uh, because it. I think it it is resonant. People kind of it's kind of cool from and and healthcare is becoming more consumer oriented. Right. Yeah. There's there, there's no doubt, especially as as wearables continue to uh, 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 sort of the, the wearable trend you know becomes less of a trend and more of a <laughs> uh, more of a mainstay, uh, so to speak. But uh, on that note, I. You mentioned, you know, Amazon, right? And I think most people that would listen to this interview or maybe listen to you present on this topic, 
it, your message probably resonates, right? Just like, you know, similar to what, you know, when I first, you know, came, came across your, you know, your work, everything resonated. I can, you know, I use Amazon on a, on a frequent basis. I can, you know, sort of, you know, see how they, <laughs> how, you know, the, the sort of, uh, you know, tactics or, or, uh, or, 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 you know, things that they do in order to, to message appropriately to me, everything makes sense. But to play devil's advocate, you know, some, some, you know, especially, you know, you know, industry on the, on the industry side, you know, I guess not necessarily just on the industry side, but, you know, pretty much anywhere you're dealing with large organizations that, you know, feel that they have a target on their back from a legal standpoint are going to say, well, well, Neil, some of these things that you're mentioning are going to be too hard to overcome from a legal standpoint, right? So how, how do you answer that, that question or that point? Well, I think, uh, actually, I don't, I think we think it's a legal issue more than it is. Do, Do we have to be careful? Sure. Do we need people's permission as we start getting more personal with them? Absolutely. Uh, but people will provide permission if you offer them value. Uh, I, I think privacy is a huge issue, but we've made it more insurmountable than it needs to be. Um, people don't tend to get as distressed by their privacy being invaded if they think they're getting something of value in return. Um, now, some people clearly don't want this kind of process happening with them and we have to absolutely respect that at the same time if we were more valuable to people they wouldn't view us as a nuisance and we could become the more valuable we become the more trusted we become the more trusted we become the more value they're going to be willing to let us share with them and the more personal they'll let us become with them so i think it's kind of how do we move from a doom loop to a a virtuous circle and it's uh, it doesn't happen all at once but i think it's uh, i think it's just us starting inch by inch to do those things, you know, and and so you have to be careful in how personal you get, how quickly, but I think it's going to be surprising. People are just hungry for something that's meaningful to them, as opposed to too often our industry just sends them stuff that meets our requirement, but it doesn't meet their need. Sure. Maybe that, maybe that's the, 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 the the other, here's the other way I, I, before I forget, it just popped in my head. Sure. Another way to share data is to let consumers share data with each other. So, especially as you get into, like, you know, recovering from from any kind of a procedure, um, you know, or or even a broken bone. I've had, you know, no one wants to have a, you know, is going to go to many websites to share information with each other about recovering from an ankle fracture. However... If you say, I'm an avid tennis player, I'd love to know other tennis players who have had a, uh, a hip replacement. And I'd like to know what they did to recover more effectively so they could get back to tennis. Well, now you've just got a whole community of people who are probably willing to share uh, uh, not, it, it's not objective data, but it's that subjective knowledge that they've gathered in terms of what they've done and how they've learned. You know, and that that tangential data is huge, and that can come in a, in a peer in a peer model, and so and that's a place where everyone there is choosing to give up their day, their personal data to each other because they found a community of trust. You might uh, we we used to refer to it as a microculture of meaning, or a mom an M O M, and that you know, you know people will listen to their mom, so because they learn through the experience of other people they identify with. Um, you know, in the old days that was called AA. Um, you know, I'm an alcoholic, you're an alcoholic. But now we can do that in ever-increasing detail 
around a lot of these sorts of things. So an, another real place to start is by not asking people to share with you, but to share with other people they care about or they identify with. Sure. Yeah, that that, that makes uh, that makes sense. And just to circle back around regarding the the, the, the legal uh, sort of the, the the topic of legal ramifications or or the fear around le- uh, you know legal implications with with you know uh, moving moving towards this sort of a. Uh, this paradigm change is I, I think oftentimes and maybe maybe you'd agree with this is that legal is a cop-out right you kind of mentioned at the at the beginning of this this conversation how <laughs> you, you mentioned laziness and legal and kind of in, in, in the same sentence and I'm not sure if you you, you meant to do it that way but I think the legal folks are very vigilant and I think their job is to prevent is to reduce risk and that's highly appropriate but at the same time, I think it's our job, if we want to change behavior, to push against, um, push back and say, look, we absolutely have to stay on the, the right side of anything that's legal, but how close can we come up to that edge to be appropriate with all the right safeguards and at the same time, don't presume just because we haven't done it before, we can't do it now. And I, I think a lot of that is like with anything in the consumer space, the critical issue is being transparent and asking permission. And if you get the right permissions from people, uh, you can do a lot, and you're more likely to get the right permissions from people if you offer things of value. Um, and I think too often we've assumed that people don't uh, give us permission and they just don't like us or trust us, but that's partly because we haven't been offering anything that's worth their while. So we just have to get better, and then we're going to have to do it inch by inch so that we do need get their permissions. Once you have people's permission, you can do a lot. Um, and, and, of course, they also have the right to revoke that permission at any time. So you better keep being right on because they can always say, don't send this to me anymore. Let me, you know, don't ever, let, don't ever talk to me again. You know, they can cut you off. So we have to stay on the right side of the value equation as well as the legal equation doing that. Got it. And uh, you're, you, that that comment reminds me of, uh, of of Seth Godin's book, Permission Marketing, which you know he published. Gosh, it's years. probably been at least at least ten years ago, right? You know, uh, <laughs> but the, the 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 principle still very much applies. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. So so before we get to our you know, the last three rapid fire questions, um, to to sum up this conversation, you know, let's pretend that I'm a you know I'm leading a an organization at a at a medical device company or a biotech company. And I, you know, I've only got 30 seconds, you know, to, to kind of hear, uh, you know, hear about what you're doing at, at Premiera and, and some of the things that maybe I should think about incorporating. So maybe, you know, can you can you sum up, uh, you know, maybe maybe two to three things that I should I should begin to act on now with respect to, you know, messaging uh, to to patients in a in a more you know meaningful way. Yep. Number one is remember that people do health is a means to an end. So you have to ask yourself, who am I being healthy for or why am I, what am I being healthy for? What in my life is this going to do for me? And that whenever we're building messaging, we have to answer those questions for people, the, the what and the why um, in terms of in the context is in, in the why in my life, the what in my life. If you do that, that re- helps you think about um, what message it's and, and, and not just simply say this is going to make you healthier. It's um, to take the Walgreens ad at the corner of happy and healthy is probably more focusing on the happy. And what does happy mean for an individual? Um, and happy, I mean by that, what, what is fulfilling and meaningful as opposed to just happy? 
Um, so just think of that, that that message, if you don't understand the why behind the, 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 the issue or the, the procedure and why that's meaningful to that person and how it will help their life, you're not going to be effective however accurate you are. Um, so that would be number one. Number two would be uh, look for the technologies, and they're now out there, that can help you build those capabilities. Um, and, you know, I think in the past we've just assumed that they're not there, and in fact they are. Um, but it means talking to people who may not have been the traditional marketers of the past. Um, and I would say think about personalization and tailoring, not segmentation. Got it. That's, that's great stuff. So uh, thanks again for wrapping that up, Neil. I, I appreciate it. Let's get to the, the last three uh, rapid-fire questions. They're, they're rapid-fire questions. They don't necessarily have to be rapid-fire answers, but okay. they certainly can be. So <laughs> so for, first one is, uh, is what's your favorite now? non What's that? Am I getting in favor now, in trouble now for uh, with these kind of questions? Oh, no, um, no, not at all, not at all. Uh, the, you know, they're, they're rapid fire just uh, on, on my end, right? They uh, don't feel like you have to to, uh, to answer very, very quickly or, or abruptly on your end. But if you if you want to, uh, more, more than uh, you know, go right ahead. But uh, okay. uh, first question is, what's your, uh, your favorite nonfiction business book? It's surprisingly an old book. Uh, it's from the 80s. It's a book called Entrepreneuring by Guilford Pinchot. Um, and it talks about how do you make change happen within, how do you do innovation within large corporations? Um, you know, I know we're in a big world of start tech startups and everybody wants to be, you know, the next, the next, uh, Facebook or Google or something. But once you're in those kind of organizations, how can you facilitate, um, how can you facilitate change being made? How can you create the skunk works that really create, um, real changes. And, and, and I think if you look at that, because a lot of the things I'm looking at is, is, is really about social information. And a lot of that grew out of places like Park um, and, you know, with Xerox and, and folks like that. Um, and how did that, you know, and really, if you go way back to, I think it's, you know, like RCA research and IBM research, and, and they built these huge capabilities. And now it's, how do you actually do that in, in, in a more modern world? And how can you facilitate speed within the bowels uh, of the beast, so to speak. So I'd really recommend that book. It's fun. And that's called Intrapreneuring? Intrapreneuring, with an, starting with an I instead of an E. Got it. Okay. Great it's stuff. Like I've never heard of that. It's like a 30-year-old book. Some of the examples yeah. will sound, sound old, and indeed they are, because you know some of these, those brands have come and gone, but the principles make sense. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that, I, I like it. Um, so, second question: Is there a a business leader uh, that you're following right now, or maybe one that really uh, you find inspiring? Um, inspiring too. Neither of them are um, doing anything today. So, you know, so I'm an old guy too. So, one was Dave Lawrence, who was the CEO of Kaiser. Uh, I got to know Dave, and I found um, he was a model of servant leadership. He walked into a room. Everybody was delighted to see him. He had clear vision and yet a huge, warm personality that made people uh, both like the vision was clear and the desire to follow was great uh, because he was just uh, he was he was just a warm human being. So he's he's one of the guys I've always emulated. Um, The other is a guy you've never heard of. His name is Richard Catlett. And uh, almost 40 years ago, in fact, Goodness, it was 40 years ago, I was this director of a street drug crisis center uh, in central Missouri. 
And uh, we handled some very strange people in the mid-70s uh, in terms of the kind of people who had been released from, uh, from the mental institutions, drug abuse issues, all sorts of things, street people. And he was the president of the board of directors. And Rich Catlett was a Quaker who, um, when you asked him when he got involved, and he was, this was a guy at the time, I think he was in his 80s. Um, so he's not with us anymore. But at the time, he said, when did you get involved, like, for example, in, in the peace movement? And he would go, uh, 1933. And, and you go, wow, that's interesting. Um, and, you know, so he was a conscientious objector during the Second World War, uh, hmm. which is a very rare thing. And, and then he ended up opening the health food store um, in, after he uh, got through the war. And, um, and just everything he did was principle-based. He had clear principles, and yet at the same time, he was an amazingly flexible guy because he would try and say, how can I be effective? How can I help manage circumstances and stay within those kind of the, the guardrails of my principles and yet be maximally flexible and warm in the process of meeting those flex, those principles. And so those have been two guys. I mean, somebody who absolutely, I mean, he actually ended up, he refused to give money to any government that supported war, which of course included the United States, and he ended up being put in jail. Uh, and they, they put a lien on his, 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 they were gonna put a lien on his health food store, so he just gave it away. They put him in prison, so he started organizing people in prison, so they got him out of prison as quickly as possible. And, they, and all the prison guards just loved this guy. Um, and what he showed was decades of tenacity tied to principle, tied, tied to humanism. And so I think those kind of things become, to me, um, huge ways of thinking about leadership. Wow, that's, that's amazing. And what was his name again? Dave, what was his last name? Uh, the first guy is Dave Lawrence, and he Dave was Lawrence, actually the then... chief executive officer of Kaiser at one time. He's retired yeah. now. And the other is Richard Catlett. Who is Richard just, Catlett, uh, okay. Catlett, uh, yeah, and he was... I mean, just go into health food store in Columbia, Missouri. Got it. That's a uh, that's a uh, that's very cool. And, and you knew him personally? Oh yeah, I knew both of them personally. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah, that's 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 good stuff. Um, uh, last question: When thinking about your uh, your career in healthcare, uh, what's the one piece of advice uh, that you'd tell your thirty year old self if we uh, had the option to rewind the clock? Hmm. Uh, keep a sense of humor. Um, keep a sense of vision. Um, uh, as I've looked back and, and over all the years, uh, what's, there's a, just a couple of major themes uh, that I have found in, uh, in my work, and I, and I would tell myself that's the thing to do is find something you care about a great deal um, and, in terms of a vision. And in my case, it's always been around um, personalization to drive population change, and it's, it's manifested itself in all kinds of ways. Uh, whether it's helping open clinics at the workplace because that brings it right to work and makes it convenient and personal or through tailoring technologies. And so I'd say you've got to have that vision and and a sense of humor helps because that's what helps drive the tenacity um, to, to keep doing this because some of the things I've started, I find, take um, years and decades before they turn come into fruition. And that's where the hum the humor helps get you through that's what provides the tenacity. And so I'd say a little humor plus a lot of vision will equal tenacity or the resilience uh, because you understand why you're doing it. There's meaning for you in it. 
Great. And then kind That's of uh, helps you through it. <laughs> yeah, I can totally appreciate that. I can I can uh, absolutely uh, understand kind of where you're coming from. That's that's great advice. So, uh, thanks a ton, Neil, for for taking some time uh, today to to share your your insights. You've got a, a wealth of knowledge when it comes to, you know, engaging uh, engaging with with, with patients and, and making sure our, our messaging is is a pro, uh, you know is, is not only appropriate but it, it meets a true need in a way that. Uh, you know that's 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 transparent and authentic. So I appreciate you you taking the time. I'll have you hold on the line um, real quick uh, while I while I uh, I, end, I end this particular episode. But uh, just two quick messages uh, for for the audience. If you're a fan of the MedSite or podcast, really appreciate it if you'd. Uh, uh, you'd, you'd rate us on iTunes. That really helps in terms of increasing uh, the visibility uh, for these these episodes. Uh, and then uh, if you if you want to kind of be you want to stay stay current on uh, uh, on the latest uh, the latest uh, MedSider interviews, uh, I would encourage you to go to MedSider.com and subscribe to the uh, the email newsletter. Don't send it out terribly often, but when I do, I try to make sure it's uh, it's uh, it's meaningful. So. Um, with that said, thanks, thanks again, Neil. I'll have you hold on here in a second, and uh, thanks for your uh, uh, to you listening to this uh, this interview. Thanks for your uh, your attention.